Hey, Dreadheads, it's Brian, and you're hearing from me a bit off schedule because we got a little lucky this past week and have more stuff to share with you. So if you listen to Friday's episode with Frank Four, and please do listen to it, I allude in the intro and then in our conversation to an article he wrote recently for The Atlantic, which is a profile of Attorney General Merrick Garland. And really, it's an investigation of the question, will Garland indict Donald Trump? We didn't know Frank was working on that piece when we reached out to him to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter and the whole global right-wing authoritarian alliance. So when The Atlantic published it, we realized we had a great opportunity to pick his brain about Garland, too. And not just about the will he, won't he question, but also about the fairly apparent tensions between Garland's sense of himself, his actual personality, and the momentousness of the dilemma staring him in the face. If he is going to pull the trigger, was there a better time and way to go about it? And to what extent does the light touch way the Justice Department has gone about investigating Trump until recently stem from Garland's own internal contradictions? So this is that bonus conversation. It runs about an hour, and we'll be back to our regular schedule on Friday. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. So after all that, let's table Elon Musk and Twitter and the whole topic of the episode and talk about something completely different. Um, as we were planning this and booking you as our guest, you published a piece at The Atlantic where you're a staff writer profiling Merrick Garland and trying to intuit through what you learned whether he will indict Donald Trump. Would you spoil your conclusion for anyone listening who hasn't read it? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the answer. He will indict Donald Trump. And it was, um, I, I should just caveat this uh, in, in a couple of important ways. The first is, in the course of my reporting, I got to talk to some top people at the Justice Department, and I spent about an hour and a half with Merrick Garland uh, himself. And um, the people at the Justice Department, at least in their dealings with me, we're very, very careful not to discuss ongoing investigations. So they never tip their hand as it relates to the big question. And so what I tried to do was um, to study study the man, study his approach to law, study the way that he's managed the Justice Department to see what, what, what my take was on the answer to these questions. And I, I should admit that I started probably leaning towards uh, the skeptical on this question that I, you know, when I, when I began, I thought the investigation seems to be quite slow moving. He's like, he, I, I, his caution is so overwhelming. It's never going to happen. But then um, really over the course of this last summer, a couple of things happened. The first is uh, he gave some speeches, which to me signaled that the job of being attorney general in the era of Donald Trump had actually started to change the man himself. That um, that being attorney general is one of the most panoramic positions that you could have in America. You get to see everything that's happening on the ground through the courts, through the FBI, um, through the fact that you're dealing with national security, domestic security. And I think that uh, Garland, who entered the office as a, as a cautious, hyperprudential institutionalist, has been changed by what he's seen percolating through American life. I mean, it's it, it, it's distressing. Maybe it shouldn't take being attorney general to kind of come to the realization that uh, the country is running seriously off the rails. So that happened. And the second is the, the Mar-a-Lago investigation uh, came to the fore. And um, the question of whether Donald Trump gets indicted is, of course, you know, 
three or four or five or half a dozen different questions at the end of the day. There's a January 6th investigation, their ancillary investigations to January 6th about uh, the fake slate of electors that grand juries are pursuing. And then there's this question about the documents that were uh, purloined to Mar-a-Lago and held there despite repeated efforts of the archives and the Justice Department to retrieve them. And the most basic of these questions is really the documents one, just because the crime is like is, is so blatant and it's also an offense against the Justice Department itself. And so Merrick Garland, as an institutionalist, I think has also been somewhat radicalized by the fact that Trump has so like has attacked the Justice Department itself in a very direct sort of way, accusing it of planting evidence fomenting threats against Department of Justice employees. And he's basically striking Merrick Garland's nerve when he's doing all these things. And so I think once you set down the course of investigating the Mar-a-Lago document question, I think that's when it starts to get inevitable to me that Donald Trump will be indicted. So I was going to ask you where you were before you started reporting, what your sense was, whether the process of reporting had sort of confirmed your preconceived notions about him or refuted them. Instead of that question, I'll ask, since you published it, have you, have any of the people that you talked to pushed back in any way or have you, has anything else just sort of come out of the woodwork to make you have yet another? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure just given their reticence to talk about the investigation itself, whether they would push back against me but mm-hmm. uh, I haven't actually received any push any I haven't received any f- official pushback against my conclusion, which again, you know, there could be a variety of reasons why <laughs> that's the case. Um, you know, I would say you just to your first question about whether how I approached this question uh, approach mm-hmm. America on, I mean, I really um, like everybody who watched the January six hearings, I mean, it's hard not to be influenced by um, the crystalline clarity with which they presented, the case that they have presented. But I think what I, uh, you know, I found myself more sympathetic to Garland in the course of just understanding the case that he would have to put together as it relates to January 6th. And like all the reasons why, um, you know, clearly they started slowly with these investigations, but once, even after they've started to acquire momentum, which they seemingly have acquired, um, they're still very hard cases to bring. And, um, you know, I think that the idea that maybe you'd want to err on the side of, you know, locking down your case, getting, getting this buttoned up thing, um, like, you know, our culture craves instant gratification and it's very, very hard to sit and watch something when the injustice is so obvious and to mm-hmm. see the response to it so slow, um, but you know, there, there's it's, it's, there's a there's a balance. He needs to get it right because the consequences of getting it wrong are so huge. Um, and yet, if you wait too long, then there is no accountability. And we're approaching, I think, the window where um, something probably needs to happen, or it will never happen. I think you're right about that. I. I have so many conflicting thoughts about the Garland question yeah, yeah. and uh, that I want to get to, and I'm going to I'm going to bracket him for a second because beyond his whether he's reticent or whether he's 
scared or whether he, you know, whatever's going on inside his head, the picture that emerges uh, from your piece is very much this man of the Justice Department, right? And Absolutely. I mean, obviously, he, he he is one. And and as you said, like, the Justice Department that he took over is now under direct attack by Trump. And the crimes of that are being investigated in the Mar-a-Lago case are ones where, like, like when Edward Snowden steals documents, like, everyone who's part of the intelligence community will happily tell any reporter that they'd be happy if Snowden were put to death, right? Like it's, it's a kind of crime that that part of our government just doesn't tolerate. And the justice department tends to move swiftly against them when they're not Donald Trump. Right. So I get how he could feel pressured in this case where he felt sort of averse in the other, but when he started on the job, what concerned me uh, is that he wasn't he didn't strike me as a man of the Justice Department. He struck me as a man of like of the appellate bar. Um, and that's a very different culture, right? Like uh, in the appellate bar, everyone wants everyone else to like them. Courteousness is like the coin of the realm. It's very important to indulge in fictions about the impartiality of the judiciary its imperviousness, the political pressure, on and on and on. And, and it worried me that someone like that was a poor fit for the moment where you have this extraordinary partisan corruption and 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 bringing people who engage in it to justice w- would be antithetical to that kind of clubbiness. Yeah. And so I wondered if you got any sense of how that part of his professional background looms in his life now – like it, it, if it could, still affects his thinking or if he's like completely shaken it off. Oh, I'm sure it still affects his thinking. I mean, part of what you see, you're describing, um, you're describing a position and a personality type that actually I think blended in, in the figure of Merrick Garland, that he is somebody. Um, I think he isn't somebody who's inclined towards, uh, towards confrontation. And I think that the, the 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 culture of the appellate courts which he was a part of for decades like definitely was was him and i think it really hobbled him on his way into the building um just from what i gather about the culture of the building like it was you know happened he came in the middle of the pandemic um i think he was very much in an ivory tower for a good part of it and he took some heat for that um and i think he's He's actually, he's somewhat, he, he doesn't want to believe that he's responsive to criticism, but he actually is responsive to criticism, especially, uh, you know, his, his, his world is like really, uh, it's not the world of like, socially, it's not like he's hanging out with John Roberts. Like when he was, <laughs> when he was on the bench, for sure, he socialized with John Roberts and had to establish a working relationship with John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh. Um, but I think socially, his world is very much like top officials in the Biden administration and like liberal power lawyers in D.C. Who um, So uh, I think that that probably has more, you know, that, that's his milieu. And that's more yeah, likely when- to be the thing that he's he's influenced by at the end of the day. And he was like, it's like a New York Times reading guy. You know, he's not. Exactly. When he reads like the palace intrigue story in the New York Times where Joe Biden is frustrated with his, uh, you know, Hamlet-like professorial t- 
tendency and like he's just not moving. You know, I don't know what the source of that story was, but Garland would have read it and it w- and it he would have it would have pissed him off because he's a human. <laughs> yeah, it would have pissed him off. But what? this is this is actually the, I think there's a, if I can just be uh, armchair psychologist, I think that there's two steps to that story. It's like okay. on the one hand. He's probably pissed off at the pressure because none of us like to feel pressure. Like when you when when you had a piece that was due and I was like, uh, I'm like, you know, I'm hovering over you to try to like make you hit deadline. <laughs> You're resenting me for like uh, putting pressure on you. Never for happened. And um, but then there's this other step where when he gets to this moment where he's got to raid Donald Trump's house or do something that's unprecedented and he has to engage in a more confrontational relationship with Donald Trump. I think in his own head, he then he's then reached the point where he's telling himself, you know what? I've done this all the proper way. Like nobody could accuse me of being a partisan hack as I go about doing this unprecedented thing. Cause I've taken so much heat from my own side along the way. And for him, I think that knowing that he's done it all precisely and he's done it all in the right spirit i think is the most important thing and so in kind of um in a counterintuitive sort of way the criticism stings and then it alleviates whatever anxiety and there's a third thing too which is that like the scuttlebutt now might be that biden's like why are you why are you taking your sweet time, dude. But like the scuttlebutt when Garland got the nomination was that Biden wanted to move past Trump and Garland was going to be the guy who, <laughs> who yeah, right. didn't want didn't want any part of that. And so it was a match yeah. made in heaven for that reason. And so it's like schizophrenic on Biden's part to now be leaking the opposite. Um, but okay, this, this supposition that he's done everything by the book. Um, let's talk about that. Like, Let's also let's assume you've got Garland dead to rights, and that your I may not conclusion. <laughs> and, and, yeah, no, I know, and, and you and you write about that in the piece, like that that may, you could be wrong, of course, obviously, a sort of uh, maybe not so obviously, but <laughs> no, well, I mean, just in that you can't predict the future, whatever. Uh, a sort uh, a premise of the Garland approach is that slow going is important to pulling it off, and and. You, you more or less just articulated that and like that if you take great care and you follow the rule book and you maybe even convey a sense of reluctance uh, that these are like an essential ingredient you, that you can't indict Donald Trump in a blaze of glory. Right. Do you buy that? Because I kind of want to stress test that. idea. Yeah, I, I, I think I do buy it. Um, you know, I think that I do think that it's important for our system for people to be treated on the merits. I think that every public corruption case that the Justice Department uh, prosecutes, every time they go after an elected official um, and 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 former elected officials, they tend to um, be extra concerned about not screwing up. So, I think that. I, you know, I think that there's like the there's the right reason to prosecute Donald Trump, and then there's a wrong reason to prosecute Donald Trump. The right reason to prosecute him is that he's created, he's committed, like you know, imp- he's committed important crimes that deserve to be punished, and nobody is above the law. The law- wrong reason to, p- to prosecute him is because he represents a democratic emergency and needs to be stopped at all costs. And um, I think that there are people who confuse the two sometimes. 
Um, and, um, I, 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 so, so I do think it's, I think there's no reason you wouldn't want to apply the same standards to him that you would apply it to any other public official that you were, you were prosecuting. But do you have to, I guess is a question. So you have in Donald Trump, a, a, a figure who committed this crime against democracy that entailed a bunch of felonies. And so even if your purpose in meeting out justice swiftly uh, shouldn't be to be like a superhero for democracy, you have an opportunity to both move quickly and yeah. also in doing so protect democracy. So why not? Right. So I would say there's there's an ethical question, right? Which is that like, we're, in, of all the norms that we have, like a lot of them are stupid and deserve to be jettisoned. They're kind of relics from another time. But then the rule of law and kind of the fairness of our judicial system, I think is like essentially the, the, the core of democratic order. And um, so ethically, and both as a matter of preserving the system, um, I think that it's, it's pretty important that it be done, it be done fairly and so that that's the question. Your question is kind of can it be done fairly and swiftly because a democratic emergency demands that it be done fairly and swiftly. And so I I, I don't know how you get so he made a mistake, in my opinion, in 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 slow walking some of this at the start. Um, so there's that. But um I think the question is just is how much tension there is, is there between being um, uh, swift and fair and whether in the course of being swift, you somehow trample fairness. Um, and it, 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 engage with me on this because I do think it's a fascinating yeah, question. Yeah. Like, I, I think so, this is like an important, this is really like a core question for our democracy. Yeah. I So, I guess look like when a when a when a new president comes in or a new administration comes in or a new attorney general comes in they you know the the law and policy are mostly separate but they intersect right and so uh a, the attorney general will deploy resources in one administration towards fighting uh uh trafficking and in another administration they'll uh, move towards drug enforcement whatever you know they'll they'll set their priorities on the basis of what their values tell them is the most urgent thing facing America now, or, or if you want to be cynical, what their what their partisanship tells them is the most important thing for them to to focus the Justice Department's might toward. Um, and so the Justice Department can move very fast when it wants to, and and sometimes deprioritizes things and then move slowly. And you know your, your story notes that Garland says that you have to start with the overt crimes. Uh, and 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 move your way up the chain from there. Okay, stipulate that the overt crimes are the ones that you can move fast on and that you have to prosecute first. Well, a you have the strike while the iron is hot necessity with, with, with when as pertains to Trump and yeah. an effort to overthrow the election. You are, you at the same time you had the Raffensburger phone call, like it's on tape, pretty overt, right? You had. 
uh, Robert Mueller's evidence of obstruction of justice. Like it was just sitting there. You had SDNY and it had evidence of like campaign finance fraud in the Michael Cohen case. And in the same way that I, you, you, you could get Al Capone for tax evasion. You could get Donald Trump for whatever, really. And it would be fair. And the evidence is there. Garland left it all on the shelf. And what you portray as being like, like rectitude and following the norms and, and not letting politics drive it to me, or, or at least you can be viewed from a different perspective as being highly political, as being evasive, as as like establishing a a, a new like yeah. footnote on the rule of law that says Donald Trump is exempt from a lot of this stuff. Um, and now, you know, he's full speed ahead on the Mar-a-Lago case, perhaps, but the the strike while the iron the, the iron is no longer hot. It is a cold iron. And uh, you know, tr- that's allowed Trump to put the insurrection behind him somewhat, get get the GOP fully regrouped around him. And if you look at it from that perspective, then Garland's ambivalence isn't helping the cause of bringing Trump to justice. It's it's really hurt it pretty badly. So you know, as a non-lawyer, I, I'm like I, I and as somebody like one of the maddening things about the Department of Justice is that it is a black box, and um, I happen to think that like what's worse than missing cases is bringing cases and missing. Like I think that it was pretty clear with Trump that every time he was exonerated in any sort of way, even if it was like, a bullshit technicality. He then like used that to kind of to behave worse, and so lack of accountability, like the, the lack of accountability, comes in various different uh, shapes and forms. And so, like the uh, like the worst would be prosecuting him in, 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 in prosecuting cases that just didn't that just didn't stand up, where juries acquitted him, or you know he. he so um, I think some of those cases, I like I don't understand why the Georgia case is not the basis for a federal prosecution, but I, 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 I'm admittedly not, not a legal expert. I think that um, with January 6th, I'm struck by how the January 6th committee swung in whiffed on a lot of stuff and like, didn't actually close the loop. Like the, if the real, so this is why the, the, the virtue of kind of taking the approach that he's taken to January 6th is that if like the core of what happened on that day was that right-wing paramilitaries conspired with the white house to overthrow a, to, 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 to violently disrupt a congressional hearing in order to overthrow an election like that. I, which I think is what they were implying for a good chunk of the last couple of hearings. And they just didn't have the material to make that case. And I think, that is a case that needs to be built. Like there's, there is, there is wisdom in building a case meticulously because you flip witnesses. Um, a lot of the, the the communication that exists, while we have ubiqu- ubiquitous text messages, like a lot of stuff disappears um, because it, that the people who commit the crimes 
know they're committing crimes and they try to obscure the stuff that makes them culpable. And so I think that by building a case from the ground up and by turning people and, you know, by, by doing it the rigorous way, like you're, you're in the end more likely to get the goods and get the goods in a way that sticks. Positively Dreadful is brought to you by BetterHelp. When you're faced with challenges in life, it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode. And if you're like me, you probably compound that by spending all of your problem-solving energy on crossword puzzles and Sudoku. But there really is no better feeling than being on the other side of solving a problem and getting rid of all the dead weight our problems burden us with. And if you know that intuitively and want to get better at solving problems before they become a burden on your quality of life, a therapist can help make it easier to accomplish your goals, big and small. And BetterHelp is a great way to get that process started. Okay, it's true. I host a podcast that's all about problems that are hard to solve, even when we put our minds to it. But our philosophy is similar. Knowledge, including self-knowledge, is key to thriving even in a challenging world. Sometimes you need someone in your corner, someone whose job is to help you figure out what's causing you to feel the way you do and what you can do about it. BetterHelp is convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Once you're a customer, BetterHelp can make you more likely to leap at opportunities to improve your quality of life. But until then, they have tried to help anyhow by removing the time-consuming obstacles that deter so many people from seeking or resuming therapy. You can get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, connect with your therapist via video, phone, or chat, and switch therapists at any time. All of that convenience and online therapy is just as effective as traditional in-person therapy, and it's more affordable too. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com dreadful today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash dreadful. Positively Dreadful is brought to you by the new documentary podcast, The Last Resort. During election years, you may hear talk about secession. Here's a thought to ponder, though. What if California seceded from the United States? If it did, what would happen? Would it usher in a new era of peace and prosperity or plunge the U.S. into a new civil war? Speaking just for myself, I would advise California to figure out how to build a house and a train for under a trillion dollars before seceding from the United States. But what do I know? Anyhow, The Last Resort is a new documentary podcast following the rise and fall of Cal Exit, the campaign for Californian independence. It's a story about a dream for a new progressive utopia on the West Coast and about the fight for America's future. The Last Resort is also a tale of two friends who started on the political fringe and ended up in the middle of a still unfolding global criminal conspiracy involving the FBI and Russian intelligence. It's important to understand the real implications of secession, especially during election years when there's potential for actual voting on the issue. The Last Resort helps inform listeners of what they need to know. Listen to new episodes of The Last Resort every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
I think it kind of cuts both ways, right? Like the longer you wait to get around to it because you're you're dotting so many I's and crossing so many T's, the more time people have to destroy their text messages. And sometimes it's the it's that it's the it's the lack of alacrity that um that like makes it difficult to piece together what happened at a specific moment because over time memories have faded, evidence has disappeared, evidence has been destroyed. Um, and you know, that's a criticism I didn't invent. Like I, yeah, that's a, you know, criticism of that Garland's critics from the justice department or, or who are now former justice department officials have leveled against his, like start with the rioters and move up the chain. Like this was some sort like, like this was a mafia, uh, investigation. Or a, a lot like of those a critics, a lot of those critics have at least modified their criticism over the course of just watching the stuff become public. That's become public. That they, that Garland and the DOJ have more and have been doing more quietly than we've been aware of. And yeah, then they, when, then when they do speak in court, it's like, okay, I was overreacting based on yeah. complete information. Yeah. I hear that. I, you know, I also, obviously Adam Schiff is, has, has a rooting interest in how this all plays out, but you know, he says that if, if it had been a lower level person who called Brad Raffensperger to do the shakedown, or if it had just been somebody who wasn't even affiliated with Trump, but was just a, a, a Trump loyalist who had a lot of guns and, uh, and, and called in and, you know, uh, made implicit threats at the Georgia Secretary of State, that that person would have been indicted very quickly if it was if the phone call was recorded and there was no doubt about what had happened or what the purpose was. Um, and you know, I I I get I feel like if there was a way to do it and Garland had done it to like come at Trump with lightning. Um, very fast in the immediate aftermath of the insurrection, it would not have felt like partisanship. It would have, it would have felt like it had a lot of integrity behind it. It would have felt like this is what a government does when, when somebody tries to violently overthrow it and they fail is like the, like justice will move swiftly. And, um, and it would have occurred when, when Trump was at a much more vulnerable place than he is now. Um, and it wouldn't seem like, oh, wow, it's like, you know, Trump might run for president again, and now you're just trying to cut his legs out from under him to protect your boss. Like that, that looks much worse to me now, two years on, than than you know. Uh, I just, I, I think, I, you know, I, I hear you, but I feel like, um, to some extent, like what you're describing, just it, it just doesn't happen. In the just with the Justice Department, that's just not the way it moves. It's like even in the cases, you know, just to like take other examples. Like, uh, I mean, I, I cite Garland's involvement with Oklahoma City, which was not his to really decide the totally decide the timeline on. It just takes a long time. Like Enron or some like these cases. Just like the nature of the way that they move is that they move they move in this kind of um, like w seemingly glacial way. And um, uh, I, not always, I mean, like reality winner was under indictment within days of sending documents to the intercept. And they knew who Edward Snowden was before he revealed himself in that video. And 
obviously they they haven't nabbed him, but they you know I, I don't I don't it didn't take two years <laughs> to, to 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 charge him. So so I mean we can we can definitely posit that there are like certain crimes that the Justice Department moves swiftly with, and like other crimes where it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I just think that there, there is a world in which the Justice Department could have had Trump under indictment by now, if it decided that doing that was a priority, both as a matter of adhering to the rule of law and seeing justice done, and also uh, addressing a threat to the system of government that allows the Justice Department to exist. Uh, sort of removing him from the equation. And I think that would have been perfectly justified. It, it's using the law, it's just being aggressive with it. Um, and and the fact that it didn't happen is makes me think that- It's never gonna know, happen? <laughs> well, no, no, because I, I, I actually I, I actually do think that it, it's pretty likely that it'll be indicted with the, with the Mar-a-Lago stuff, but that the early slowness wasn't just a matter of, of um, being as complete as possible, it really was an attempt to try to to let Trump run out the clock to 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 not ever let this stuff reach the point where where there's an indictment. Yeah. Um, see, see, I I do think that there is. I mean, is this is this maybe just like a irreconcilable uh, a matter of like different approaches to how you would you you go at this at this problem. Um, like if we had, if we had moved quickly and we're able to, uh, like to, to what, what would be the X factor in moving quickly? You'd have to have an attorney general who decided this is like, this is my priority is to start at the top. Like uh, this Mm -hmm. guy, Donald Trump is like an obvious, is like an obvious criminal. And I'm not going to sit here and abide uh, the fact that he's not being held accountable for his crimes, and like clearly, on um, on like a, on a moral level and like a, a societal level, like there's there's justification for taking that sort of approach. Um, if you're Merrick Garland, I mean, and this is maybe just the problem of like appointing Merrick Garland, who says like I have grown up with this principle that like you treat your foes the same way that you treat your friends. And I'm going to pursue this in the same sort of way that I would pursue any other investigation of a public official. Like, I think that there is, there's ethical power to that approach. And like the question really at the end of the day is as long as people are held accountable in my, my, my view, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if it was, if it was done at the beginning or at the end, both of those like have their different advantages. I think that you're more likely to get something that sticks. And we've like had enough opportunities to kind of try to nail crimes to Donald Trump where they don't stick because oftentimes, because we move too quickly, I think in the, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I know there's this new book out about, uh, impeachment and like i think that uh it, like in the quest to move too quickly in the second impeachment there was evidence that was never never uncovered um that was avoided and um i'm not saying that the outcome would have been any different had they waited a week or two weeks because 
it required them bringing along Republicans who were never going to get it brought, brought along. Yeah. But, but it's I, so do... funny. I, I have, I have like the opposite view. I feel like, I feel like the house could have impeached Trump on January 7th. Yeah. And, and like at that moment of Republican disarray, who knows what would have happened. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I guess like what you're, you're, I'm not saying your arguments are, like, I think your arguments are, are, you know, there, there's a lot of legit, like, legitimacy to your arguments. Maybe your arguments are, are the arguments that would protect the democratic system better if we treated this in a utilitarian sort of way. Part of my um, having spent a lot of time in Ukraine and other countries where you get stuck in this cycle of like endlessly indicting former officials means to me like th- that that's part of what colors my like desire to have it be done in the most um, the, the way that's most beyond reproach, the way that that actually does treat this like it's um, I mean, it is a norm that is being being broken and necessarily so. Right. Like we, it's it's an unstated norm. But like we, we historically are not a country like France, Israel or Ukraine that goes after uh, former presidents. And I think that when we do it, we should we should just you know, we should do it in a way that does feel like it's um, beyond politics, because in the long run, that's our that's our best hope for maintaining the system. I think it's kind of politically, I don't see it making a huge difference if Donald Trump is uh, like indicted or not indicted. Everybody knows who Donald Trump is, like, I, I, you know, and um it's it's really a question of legal accountability for crimes that have that that have been committed. Yeah, I mean, there's there is a. Um, I'm annoying you with my arguments I, right now. No, no, not all, not not all. No, I'm, I'm just trying to think about how to say uh, how to say what I'm what I'm thinking. Um, the I I would never think it was a good idea, even if it felt satisfying for the. Justice Department to go after Trump in a sloppy way or in a way that was yeah. that gave Trump like legitimate means of defeating him. And so my my argument would be to t- to do to do it in the fastest possible time or the shortest possible timeline, while making sure that you, you had all the evidence you needed to prove beyond reasonable doubt. And I my sense is that in in other realms at least, or in the Raffensperger case, like a related realm, like you have the evidence. There is, I think, a problem with Donald Trump, which is that it may not be possible, even like in the District of Columbia, to try him in front of a jury that won't have one person on it that will nullify and and uh, that basically he's corrupted American society enough to place himself above the law uh, when it comes to uh, a jury of his peers hearing evidence against him. I don't really know what you do about that. I think it's but very most possible. most prosecutors I, I talked to thought that that was a solvable problem. Really? Okay. Like in DC, I, I, yeah. But like in Florida, I mean, I don't know. I think that they um, won't bring, I think that the odds are they'd bring the documents case in DC. Because yeah. Because why I was, wouldn't I was, you if you're the Department of Justice? Right. He stole them from DC. You could definitely indict here, right? But, but, um, but if, if that's part of what's got Merrick Garland so concerned about meticulousness and all that, I mean, I know that this would also be a violation of a norm, but like if the reason Donald Trump ultimately doesn't get indicted is because Justice Department leaders 
don't believe they could secure a conviction and they don't believe they can secure a conviction because out of every uh, 12 people, one will, will, will be loyal enough to Donald Trump to, I don't think that I, I would be shocked if that's the way that they thought. Like I, I, um, I know that they're, they want cases that stick, but I think that, um, I think that's largely when they think about that, they they're largely thinking about whether they're abstractly able to persuade a jury, not whether they're specifically able to, persuade a jury yeah i guess in, i mean a district I mean, of columbia is a district of columbia like you're you yeah. couldn't it's like uh you couldn't that's the best jury you, you couldn't program <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't program a jury any better than that right it's it's true i just i i would like to like if there's going to be some reason other than um we don't have the evidence if it's going to be like we think that prosecutorial discretion means that the the consequences to society would be worse to go the charging route uh, than than to just set this case aside or the jury nullification thing or whatever the thinking is. If they have the evidence and for some other reason are are determined not to bring the case, then even though it would violate a different set of norms, like we deserve to hear that. Like, 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 the justice department should break its silence and explain why I, I agree despite I agree yeah. and 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 so yeah and I agree with you too that like past maybe march of next year it's too late and so if if that if we if we if we hit that point and nothing has happened then I feel like it's I don't know I I, I don't know who the right person to to ask questions is particularly if Democrats don't control Congress anymore. Um, but that at that point, like the conversation shifts from like, okay, like, like why did the Garland justice department decide uh, moving against Trump, even after all this investigation was, was not in the national interest, like, and get answers on that. Um, last just, question. Just, on just this one, is, one, it, one thing I just want to uh-huh. describe. I mean, I think that, um, you know, part the way that the justice department has been constructed since Watergate is in a way that is highly decentralized. And so the, a lot of these questions happen, like they're, they're designed to be answered at levels like far below Merrick Garland, even the, Mm -hmm. even as Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco keep tabs on this whole investigation. And, um, Oh, clearly they're like virtues and defects to that system. But I think that in terms of um, imposing himself on the Justice Department, I think the thing that he was reluctant to do, and I think that would have been counterproductive, is to kind of um, hover over prosecutors and say, like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? Because that's that's like that's that's a system he built the system to operate in a totally different way where um, you don't want political appointees um, like urging on prosecutors by whispering in their ear, telling them to like, to get indictments against these people you don't like. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I talked about this on a different episode. I think just that the, you know, the, the system of justice that we have a rule of law system is like a really terrible vehicle for uh, a judging a, a, cr- a crime that's basically like I, 
we tried to overthrow the government, whether you charge it as sedition or, or anything else. Yeah, um, it's true. In that, in in that, like, it's a sort of like come at the king, you best not miss situation. Where if you're in the position to be charging those people, it's because their their plan failed. But if you don't, if you don't uh, move on them in some way, then it just sort of opens the floodgates to more attempts. And eventually, one of those will succeed. Yeah, <laughs> then, yeah, yeah, then, yeah. No, I, I hear you. I agree with that. I, I totally agree with that. So last question on this. If Donald Trump had not stolen any sensitive government documents on his way out the door, or he had returned them in a timely fashion, do you think your conclusion would remain the same? No. I think my conclusion would be would different. I, I just don't. Then it would be an open question to me. I just don't. I just don't know. Yeah. I think that it's, I think that, um, I think it's possible that he would, he would get indicted for some of these crimes, but I think that those cases still feel very distant to me from being brought. Yeah. Yeah. I, f- I feel the same way. And, and I, and I think it, it goes, you know, the Cohen case, the Russia case, or I guess the Russia stuff, uh, the obstruction of the, Russia investigation, the Ukraine shakedown, and the insurrection are are all crimes that at some level are about Trump's elections, right? They're mm-hmm. he did them, yeah. you know, yeah. for the for that reason. And and the document theft thing, I mean, I I imagine in Trump's head he thought the documents would help him in a future election, probably. For sure. But uh, yeah. but just stealing stealing material from the government is not so obviously like a crime of politics. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, it's the kind of thing where the people in the justice department and in the intelligence community are, are, I'm guessing furious about what happened and will be furious if nothing happens to Trump. And so in that sense, it's like if Garland was reluctant to, to, to move on any of the previous crimes, like, but felt bad about that in some sense, like that he, that he should be a little bit more confrontational with Trump, that this was sort of like a gift to him in that regard. And it's sort of why the case, I think like why the cases seem to be moving at such different speeds. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that, and, uh, you know, this sense that Donald Trump is in possession of something that um, could physically hurt the United States of America if it ended up in the wrong hands. I think that that, that does tend to produce different, levels of activity within the justice department. I mean, you keep, uh, you invoke the reality winner, um, parallel, I guess maybe that like is that tracks this, this tracks kind of closer to that in that there are certain crimes where the justice department and the state move more expeditiously because it touches some core sensitivity that that's like ingrained in the bureaucracy or the culture of the bureaucracy. Yeah, you can't have a bureaucracy that actually treats those crimes like no big deal or else the whole thing kind of unravels. Yeah. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Olivia Martinez. And our associate producer is Emma Illich Frank. Veronica Simonetti mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Fotopoulos.